Welcome to Season 2 of The Morning Glory Project. I'm your host, Betsy Graziani-Fassbender. And on this podcast, I bring to you guests of a lot of different kinds, survivors and thrivers, innovators and trailblazers, folks that have fallen down and gotten back up, folks that have been knocked down and gotten back up. Basically, I ask every single guest the same question. How did you get through what you got through? And the reason I ask that is because I think that when we share those stories, we gain empathy for those different than ourselves. We gain understanding from those whose circumstances may resemble our own. But we all get to walk away with a little notion of how we might get through whatever we're going through. I hope you enjoyed these stories and feel free to go to themorningglory.project.com to find any past episodes or to listen to one again and feel free to share us out with your friends and give us a reviewer like we sure do appreciate it. Thanks for listening. It's my pleasure today to welcome to the Morning Glory Project Gretchen Charrington. At age 40, with two growing children and a consulting company she'd recently founded, Gretchen Charrington, daughter of Pulitzer Prize-winning poet Richard Eberhardt, faced a dilemma. Should she protect her parents' well-crafted family myths while continuing to silence her own voice? Or was it time to challenge those myths and speak her truth? In her new memoir, Poetic License, aided by research in her father's extensive library archives at Dartmouth College and by conversations with some of his closest writer friends, Charrington candidly retraces her past to make sense of her father and herself. From the women's movement of the 60s to the back to the land movement of the 70s, from her consulting work with powerful executives to speaking publicly in the formative months of the Me Too movement. This is her story of speaking truth in a world where too often men still call the shots. Gretchen Tarrington, I'm so glad that you're here on the Morning Glory Project. Welcome. Thank you, Betsy. I'm glad to be here. So you grew up under unusual circumstances for what the average person might consider. Can you, can you tell me a little bit about your growing up household, what that was like? Sure. And I think, of course, for any kid, it just seems normal because that's that's what our household is. Right. <laughs> but you're right. And reflecting back on it, it might not have been quite so usual. Um, yeah. So my parents were both just amazingly generous and open hosts. And because my dad was both a writer and also a professor at Dartmouth College, they had many, many, many people over to the house. And it really in high school, I realized that it was very rare for me to have a dinner with just my parents. So I think one of the things that was unusual was that I was surrounded by all these famous writers. The other thing that was unusual really was that they were just so generous to people that there was very little attention being paid or time given in a way to us as little kids. Hmm. My brother is five years older than I am, and he went to boarding school through high school and then was in college. So really for a lot of my growing up years, he wasn't really in the house. So I was, it was almost like being a single kid. And so from the outside, from my own beginnings, I think of a household like this with 
poet laureates and Nobel nominees and all that kind of folk walking through the house and having dinner conversations and drinks and all of that. That sounds so glamorous. (laughs) And in reading your book, in part, it was glamorous, but it also wasn't so glamorous. My impression in the reading of this story is it's almost like you didn't get to be a kid. Like you were just sort of another one of the folks at the gathering at the party. Yes, I think that's a fair statement, Um, both and and really for two reasons, as you know, from reading the book that one, because, as you mentioned, I was sort of treated like someone else who was just at the party. And also that was really more based on my father's career, but also because of my mother's disease. She had intractable epilepsy, um, very hard to manage. And so from a very young age, I also was paying attention and watching out for her to be, you know, caring for her or protective of her. So again, I mean, not until later did I really recognize, yeah, where was my childhood? (laughs) Um, and And that being said, you know, I also had the privilege of being in these amazing places and around these amazing people. So what gets you to to go from that beginning to poetic license. There's a moment in your book, your your dad was living when you began this process, correct? That's true, yep. And he, you ask him, kind of, I don't know whether it's permission or you kind of let him know that you're going to write a book about him, to which he tells you what? Your only job is to tell the truth. And I, I didn't ask it of him for permission. I didn't plan to ask him that question. I think it came after, you know, a couple of prior questions about, you know, I'm writing about you. What do you think about that? He thought it was great. Am I going to find any surprises in your literary archives? Well, wouldn't that be interesting if you did? It was after that, that I kind of posed that bigger question of, uh, is there anything you don't want me to write about? Um, and I was frankly taken aback a little bit by his response, mostly because it's, it sounded to me exactly like the kind of advice he would give to a real writer, which at that time I didn't consider myself to be, Mm -hmm. um, that was back in the nineties. I was in my forties. I was just trying to figure things out about my dad and I, you know, yes, I had been writing scenes and snippets of memories, but I didn't really, and probably I had even back then some dream of making a book, but it wasn't like I was seriously considering myself to be an author. So it struck me mostly because it felt like he was treating me as one. Hmm. in, In addition to that, given the history that you share with him, which we'll get into in a moment, for him to say, your job is to write the truth. It seems such an interesting response from him. Yeah, it's interesting because he, you know, I think at that time, I'm not sure that it surprised me in that way. He was always his own favorite subject. He enjoyed being written about. I think at that time, I wasn't clear enough in my own mind of what my own truth was yet to really know how much that might be surprising to me that he had said that. I think that really came a little bit later as I was further into my process of wrestling with um, what I saw to be my lived experience of dad versus what the public's impression of him was. 
Well, that's where, where I'd like to go next, because you write a line in this book, and I've come back to it several times, uh, both in my memory and in, and in preparing for our conversation. You say, we must all square the gifts and harms from our original families. Better done, I wager, before leaving home, not in our 40s. <laughs> so that says something about your process, I guess, of looking back and teasing, uh, like you say, squaring the gifts and the harms. Yes. And so I'm wondering, can you tell me about the gifts and can you tell me about the harms? Mm, yeah, sure. Well, the gifts certainly were um, the privileges of having you know, a nice home in New Hampshire and a, and a summer place in Maine, the amazing long summers that we enjoyed up here in Maine with all kinds of friends and regular visitors, um, the, the incredibly interesting and mostly really nice people that were around all the time. Those were some of the privileges or the gifts um, that I got. Also, just the character of my mom and dad, both as these very generous, giving people, um, fun-loving, you know, enjoyed enjoyed the party, um, you know, food. It didn't matter what food we ate. It was just always available to whoever stopped by. Those kinds of things were true gifts, true gifts, excuse me. The harms, I think, were more in the realm of emotional ones where it was it's, part of this was generational, I think, but it was not really apparent that we were allowed to feel our feelings or express them, um, particularly unless they were good and positive. And, you know, my mother was sort of a proper Bostonian in some ways, as they might say, that she would say things like, you know, well, Gretsch, just keep a stiff upper lip or, oh, Gretsch, roll with the punches. And I, I sort of got the metaphor, like I was supposed to be quiet. <laughs> but that harmed, you know, was really in regards to my, you know, native emotions. The harms of my dad were more about inattention, um, neglect, I guess you could say, and, and obviously the sexual molestation, you know, later in life when I was 17. So that took place not in your early childhood, but at, at age 17. And you, you write about that in the book. Would you be willing to share a bit about that story? Sure. Um, yes, it, it, the actual um, incident that I speak most about in the book occurred when I was 17. And interestingly, I had been at away at boarding school in Switzerland. Here's another gift, you know, away at boarding school in um, Switzerland for a year of 10th grade because I had this goal of becoming fluent in French. And when I returned, I felt pretty sophisticated. I'd lived in Europe for, you know, a, college, a, a school year. I traveled around. I'd, I'd met girls from all over the world. Um, I felt, you know, pretty, you know, with it as a, as a young emerging woman. And when I came back to the U.S., what I was faced with both the sort of inappropriate behaviors of my father that had started before I left and resumed when I got back, but also just the world was in a crazy place, right? It was 1967, 68, 69, 70, that era. And people were protesting in the streets. You know, I was, I was with them, both, you know, sort of 
philosophically as well as occasionally on the streets. And so when I came back, I, I felt like I was emerging into my own womanhood. That particular night, Anne Sexton was at our house because my father had invited her to read her poetry at Dartmouth. She had won, just won her Pulitzer Prize about six months earlier, a year after my father won his. So he invited Anne to read her poetry at, at Dartmouth. And she came by the house that afternoon as my mom was sort of fixing some supper for her. And, and um, you know, my dad was getting ready for the party after the reading and all of that. And she made a really important impression on me. It's, it's you know, it took me a while to tease out exactly what it was. But I think what she, the impression she made on me was, number one, mostly we had been surrounded by male famous writers. And so here was a famous woman writer, somewhat more contemporary to me, obviously older than me, but younger than both my parents by quite a bit. My parents were older as parents. So, you know, she was a little bit more contemporary to my time. And the way she greeted me and kind of was actually interested in me and paid attention to me was also something that I hadn't really experienced much from the poets before I left for Switzerland. So that was a bit of a surprise. I also saw in her a dark beauty, a um, extremely attractive woman, and someone who had an amazing intellect. I knew that from stories I'd been told about her. I knew that from reading some of her poetry. And um, I also knew that she had tried to kill herself by then twice. My father shared that with me that afternoon. So it was a very heady afternoon for me on the cusp of returning from Europe and feeling sort of sophisticated in my, myself, um, naively so, but anyway, you know, as, as teenagers do. And then this striking woman who sort of enters the scene very quickly, but makes a big impression. And after that, uh, after meeting with her and then seeing her again after the reading and saying my good nights, which was sort of expected of me to come down and say good nights to, to all the people who were gathered. And there were a hundred people in that house, at least, I went up to my bedroom and went to bed and I, you know, pulled the covers up and, and rolled over and went to sleep the way I normally did. It was, I don't know exactly what time later, but I was fully asleep when I was awakened by my father's hands on my back and party noise sort of spilling in to my bedroom from the hallway. Um, and I felt his hands on my back and I, I just froze. I didn't know what it meant. I didn't have any words. I didn't know what to do. Um, so, you know, I, the, the book describes a little bit more of what actually happened, but the feeling for me was this doesn't make sense. I can't understand what's happening even though my father had been somewhat um, boundaryless in his behavior towards me with, you know, kisses that went on a little too long or, um, you know, just looking at me in ways that made me uncomfortable. Still, this was another level that I never would have anticipated or expected. I didn't know anything about this stuff. And so when he left the room, I curled up in a little ball, you know, and, and um, I stared out the window. The party 
lights from downstairs shone on these big, thick pine tree trunks outside my window. And I, as I say in the book, you know, sort of pinned my my emotions, my brain, my psyche, everything to those trees. And they kind of provided me something solid to hold on to. But at that time, this is always hard for me to believe when I say it now, but back then in 1967, I didn't know a single person to whom this had happened. I didn't, like I said, have any words for it. And so I was simply frozen in time with an experience that was, you know, sort of really hard to absorb and understand. And it took a long time to come to terms with that. Of course. And first of all, Gretchen, I'm I'm just sorry that that happened to you. It's unfair and unkind and unconscionable in lots of ways. And I, you know, I, I too am a survivor and I've talked with many, many survivors of abuse, not only on this program, but as a, as a therapist and as a friend, as a citizen, it seems to be ubiquitous, sadly. Yes. But I wondered when I read your story, I wondered about the special twist to it. It doesn't make it easier or harder, just a different twist that in addition to being violated by somebody that you loved and still do love and admire and still do admire, you suffered this intrusion, this invasion from a person who also had a public face mm-hmm. and a persona that lots and lots of people knew and admired. And he was sort of the the, I guess I guess it'd be the poet's version of the big man on campus, right? Right. <laughs> he was right. sort of that guy. And I wonder about not only just living it, but then now writing about it, if there are special burdens that come with being assaulted, abused by somebody who also is a public figure. Mm-hmm. Well, I don't think there's any question about that. Um at least in my mind. And, and I, I think, and it's not, it's not to try to compare abuse, right? Of course not. Um, you know, in, many people have been, been abused far worse than I was. Um, however, I think the, the public face of the perpetrator or the person who does the harm does factor into this largely. And I've spent a fair amount of time talking with other daughters of famous people like Reed Lindbergh, you know, fathers, Charles Lindbergh and Sue Erickson Bloland, who was Eric Erickson's daughter and have learned the same things were felt by them that, that, you know, there is a, there is a public persona that the family system is kind of colluding to uphold. And I, I sort of use that word cautiously, but that's, you know, in retrospect, what it felt like. Um, There was never anything said about that. My parents were never the kind of people who said, well, you must always put a good face on, Gretsch, or, uh, you know, about our family or something like that. There's something in systems that simply exists, you know, and makes, makes the people in the system sort of get the unspoken rules, even though they are unspoken. And the unspoken rule in our family, I think, was that, 
you know, we had, this was a really great partying family and lots of fun and creativity and wonderful people around and not to harm that. Um, I, I didn't get that intellectually when I was 17. Um, it was a more visceral response that I got then. And I, I simply knew in my bones that if I were to say anything, it wasn't going to be positive. And you'd be breaking the rule. Yeah, I'd be breaking the rule. And, um, and my father would come first. And so that's why it kept, you know, that's why it stayed silent for so long. Hmm. And I do think that that's a hard thing for particularly little kids, let alone teenagers to, to bear, because um, it's a big burden, I think, on a young person to have to uphold um, that kind of family myth, if you will. Well, and, and your family myth, I think every family has their myths, regardless of their socioeconomic level or culture or background. Everybody has their their presentation, and every person has their public persona versus their private moment, right? Everybody to some degree, and, and we're all entitled to that to a certain amount. Right. But when the the myth is is myth, <laughs> you know, when it's mythic in proportion mm-hmm. to, it seems that, you know, and, and, and as you talk, Gretchen, I, I think about how many people I've spoken to who've, who've been harmed in this way, who've been abused or molested and how they, some of them were told explicitly, don't ever tell about this or right. somebody's going to hurt your family. Right. You know, there, there are explicit threats and things that happen in lots of families, but Often, I think lots of people might be surprised that I at least have encountered lots of people more like you, which is that nobody ever told me not to tell. I just knew I wasn't supposed to. I think that's so true. Yeah. And don't don't you think that in a way that almost makes it, I don't want to say worse again, because we're not comparing abuse, but there's an, there's an extra strangeness to that because you're obeying a rule that nobody ever told you had, which means you've you've, you've eaten it, you've, you've consumed it, right? It's, it's in you. That's right. Yeah. And it's been interesting with just all the responses I've gotten to the book, how many people have said that to me, basically that, you know, I didn't grow up in a literary family. I didn't grow up in New England. I didn't, you know, whatever. My family didn't look like yours, but I totally resonate with the things that you're saying. Well, that's that's the art of memoir, right? The art of the genre is to tell a story that is utterly, authentically, specifically you, your story only you could tell this and have it to be unique in that way, but also to have it universal enough, the truth of it, right. universal enough that other people can find themselves in your story, regardless of their station. So there's one element of it that they can identify with, even if your circumstances aren't the same at all as the reader. That's right. That's, I think, a testimony to the fact that you've written about your emotional truth and that perhaps on that level, we're more unified across socioeconomic and cultural lines. Mm-hmm. That's my guess anyway. Yeah, I, I think that's a good guess. <laughs> I'll ascribe to that guess. <laughs> uh, well, so so back to you know your dad telling you, no, go ahead, write your truth. He knew what had happened, I'm guessing. I mean, unless he was so intoxicated and blacked out, he didn't remember or something. He knew, correct? Well, I mean, I I guess I don't really know. You know, I, I, 
I never, when I finally did forgive him and tell him that what he had done was not right, but that I forgave him, he was, you know, near death. And so um, I don't, in fact, know how much he knew slash remembered slash, you know, ever thought about it again. Hmm. Um, I think it's possible that, you know, the only, the only slight thread of potential that he, you know, was holding on to it or, or, you know, had, had been thinking about it through his lifetime came from one of his caregivers who said, you know, there was nothing specific, but I just thought he said a few things that I wondered if something had happened, Mm. but I, that's all I know. And, and because I don't know otherwise, I do think that for someone like my dad, who was pretty self-centered and, and, um, you know, like being the center of attention and stuff. I mean, we, we also, our memories sort of shift over time. I mean, he could have, I, I don't know, he could have ignored it. Yes. Because he'd had too many bourbons. He could have forgotten it because he went back to the party and that took over. He could have, you know, or rationalized it somehow in his mind that yes, rationalized it for sure. Mm-hmm. That, that would be possible too. I've not really spent much time, you know, sort of psychoanalyzing him or his, that, that part of this. Um, and I just have never been that it hasn't really mattered to me, I guess. What I knew was that it was nothing that I could say anything about. What I knew was that I couldn't say anything for many, many years And even when I felt like I had started to reconcile what had happened and made my own peace with it, I still waited a very long time to go public with the story. Hmm. You know, it strikes me, Gretchen, as ironic that in a family of academia and poetry and, and writing, that yours was a family without words (laughs) for these (laughs) events. And it just tells us that this is not an intellectual process, this uncovering and coping and sorting process that when we're sorting out the wreckage of our own experiences or, and, and the gifts, as you say, too, the gifts and the harms, <laughs> that when we're sorting that out, it's not, it's not just a, it doesn't sort so easily. It's not so black and white. Yeah, I think that's so true. And and I guess that's, you know, one of the things that I was hoping to convey in this book is there's a lot of gray in life. There are a lot of complex people who we do love and we do not love. And, and you know, there are there are big um, uh, characters in our lives, whether they're, quote, famous or not. They're famous in our family or they're famous in our neighborhood or they're famous in just, you know, our our own context of life. Well, they're the stars of our own world, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly, right. And and some of them are complicated, and it's much more about gray and nuance than it is necessarily about black and white. I there's I certainly went through periods of black and white, you know, where I felt like, oh my god, I can't stand my father, you know, and, and I'm embarrassed by him, and I feel shame about him, and all of those things. But you know that hasn't persisted over time. Um, you know, I think my, my challenge was to live with the good and the bad together and try to make some coherence out of it for myself to go forward. And, and that's really where, where my work took me. 
my personal work. I, I have two last questions for you. One is, can you tell me about the title Poetic License and what it means to you as relevant to your story? <laughs> sure. Um, well, first of all, as a fellow author, Betsy, you'll, you'll appreciate this, that when Brooke Warner at She Writes Press saw the title, she said, we love the title. We're not changing that. <laughs> so, it usually goes the other way. It usually uh, exactly. goes, we love the book, we hate the title. <laughs> right, right. So so I, I was blessed with coming up with the right title. Um, what it meant to me really was it came from a place when I was going through my own personal work, trying to reconcile stuff. And, and um, I was, and I muse in the book a bit about, you know, how could he have done this? He was so generous and loving to so many people. I, I don't doubt that he loved me in his own way, but how could he have done this? And so I sort of muse about, well, could it have been, you know, the fact that I was maturing as a young woman and looked different than I had when I came back from, than I had before I left, you know, for Switzerland, or could it have been the infatuation with Anne Sexton and the headiness of this party, or could it be just too much booze um, and the, the, the words just sort of came out of me as I was writing that, that, or was it just his poetic license, the same license that many men have taken? And so to me, it is that it, it conveys, you know, it's an interesting take on the term because he's a poet here. He was, you know, and I grew up in this, this world of poetry, but it also conveys, um, you know, that sort of extra, that extra thing that some people try to get from others when they're not really do that thing. That extra entitlement. An extra entitlement. Exactly. For people who, you know, have big names or are famous or are surrounded by a lot of people who love them and cherish them, you know, we have a leader <laughs> of our country right now like that way off the scale from where my dad was, but, you know, who they feel entitled to whatever is around them and they'll take advantage of what those things are. Um, you know, my father was not an aggressive person, not a violent person, not a, not a, um, as soon as I sort of kicked him away, he, he basically got up and left. So, uh, this was not something he, he forced it on me cause I was asleep, but he, you know, he didn't, persist in that forcing. Um, and yet he was surrounded by, you know, a family system, a university system, all of that um, gendered systems of power and stuff that, that a lot of us grow up in um, that enabled him to, to be in some ways the way he was too. Well, it also strikes me this title of poetic license is, is your license your poetic license to <laughs> tell your story. And I, I hope that that extra layer is there as well. Yes. well. One last question, that is, what has been the aftermath of having written this book in your own experience and, and perhaps from others reacting to it? Right. Well, the aftermath has been 99.9% .9 fabulous and positive and really affirming. I've had almost nothing but fabulous notes from people, um, you know, mostly good reviews, all of that. It's, it's been heartening for me to hear from strangers who, you know, usually connect on the website who 
for, you know, like the woman I mentioned who, who has a very different context growing up, but for whom this has resonated, that means so much to me. I've been having great conversations with people about their experiences, their stories, and also, you know, further sort of validation slash confirmation from people who did know my dad and um, didn't experience the same thing, but could see some of those traits in him. That also has just been, you know, further confirming, of course, and validating. So, so it's been a positive experience. It, it really, um, you know, overall, and I think even within our family, um, it's, it's been, you know, slightly extended family. It's been um, positive to get some of these things aired and on the table and, and um, to, you know, grapple with them. Hmm. And to hopefully change the world for the better as we go forward. Well, you know, I believe that, Gretchen, I truly do. I just believe that the more sunlight we have on the reality of life, candidly, truthfully, that the better it gets. And the more we share those stories, the more of those connections and validations take place. So I want to thank you so much for creating Poetic License and for writing it, for surviving it, for also looking at both sides of it, the gifts and the harms. And I hope that going forward, they prove to be much, much more in the gift department. Thank you so much for being part of the Morning Glory Project. I appreciate your time today. Thank you so much, Betsy. It's been my pleasure. In reflecting on my conversation with Gretchen Charrington today, the author of Poetic License, first of all, it's a beautiful book and well-written and fascinating because it's a glimpse into an era and into the life in literary circles and what it's like to grow up in that where you've got famous poets and authors and artists and musicians coming through your house. That's a fascinating story, but it's also a very intimate and personal story of Gretchen and her experience with this colorful character of a father and a mother as well. And of the fact that it was a a relationship that was not pure and simple. It was not black and white. It's a love relationship and admiration relationship and also a relationship in which her father violated her body and her trust in a way that should not have happened. But when she submitted that story, beautifully written as it is, even with some famous people in there, she was told by publishers that they couldn't publish it because her father wasn't really famous enough famous enough, as if her story is less or more important because of the fame level of her father. That chafes, doesn't it? It bugs me. And it's as if, unless someone is big-time famous or a movie star or something, that their story is less important, and I just don't believe that. I know. Publishing's a business they got to make money. They sell more books if it's about a celebrity. I think we could all maybe buy books that are not by celebrities, and that would help that a little bit. But it's just something that chafes. And the second part of what I want to share from my conversation was that this is not a, a book that has chronic, ongoing, traumatic abuse in it. It's a story of subtlety. It's a story of there being just a few little episodes that it took Gretchen a long time to sort out what she felt about them. And many times abuses like that 
many times, if it's from somebody that you love and admire, you may have ambivalent feelings about it if there's sexual abuse or even physical abuse. And that kind of, did that happen? Is that appropriate? I don't know. Maybe I made that up. Feeling can discount and frankly can magnify the impact of a violation or a trauma in that way. When we compare it to somebody else, well, it's not like it happened every day, or it's not like I went to the hospital, or it's not like XYZ. And I cannot tell you how many victims of domestic abuse, sexual abuse survivors, I've heard those words from, well, it's not as if it was as bad as that. It's not like it was, I was J.C. Dugard and I was held in a hut for several years, which is a horrible story. But that's not the yardstick, is it? We don't have to compare our losses, our abuse, our traumas with somebody else's to see whether or not they're important. It's all about looking at what the impact is on our own souls and psyches and bodies and recovering from that. Comparison is such a deadly thing. If we're comparing ourselves to somebody whom we think is more beautiful or more successful or more powerful, then we, we're going to come up short. If we're a survivor and we're comparing ourselves to people whose traumas seem more dramatic or big, then we're going to come up short. And in, in all of those comparisons, it's about minimizing who we are. And in this age of social media, when everything is about comparison, how many likes you got, how many, how many followers you have, how, how happy you look in your photos, how many places you've traveled that I haven't, it's just such a deadly thing, this comparison. And I think a big fat garden of extra blooms would happen if we all stopped comparing ourselves one to another. I'm going to think about that for a while and work on not comparing myself to anybody else today. Thanks so much for listening to the Morning Glory Project. I certainly appreciate your time. And I hope that wherever you are in these crazy circumstances of this time when we're distant from one another as the Thanksgiving holiday of 2020 approaches, that whether you're meeting via Zoom, or wearing masks when you're gathering with your loved ones. Please, please be safe. Take care of you. Take care of your neighbor. Take care of your family by practicing social distancing so that you can all find your way to bloom. <laughs>